But before we get to any of that, Celeste Katzmarsden is our guest in Boston, Massachusetts. Celeste, a very good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. I mean, COVID's not over, is it? You know, COVID still goes on. There's the terrible uh, figures of people catching it or even uh, sadly succumbing to it. But, I mean, day-to-day life for a lot of people have just gone back to the way it was, hasn't it? Yeah, I think a lot of people are definitely trying to get out of that mode of social distancing and taking super precautions. I mean, for myself, I'm (laughs) I'm still even wiping down the groceries. I know that this is probably not the answer, but uh, once I started doing it, I found it sort of difficult personally to stop. I still sanitize stuff. I still um, I for the for, you know, for what it's worth, I still don't love being in huge indoor crowds. I think that's something that sort of changed for me psychologically. I feel less comfortable being in a movie theater or something like that. Um, Still going about my life and, you know, taking reasonable precautions, not hiding in my house, not under lockdown. But yeah, I would say it's changed my life somewhat. One thing that it has changed, you'd have to say, is travel. So, you know, travel pretty much ended for, I don't know, a year, two years, perhaps. International travel is only coming back to, well, not even normal these days. But it may have changed the way people behaved, do you think? On planes, for example, on aeroplanes, what have you noticed or what have you observed or what is happening over there in particular about the way people behave on planes? Uh, I think what we saw during uh, mask mandates, which uh, I don't think you are required anymore to wear a mask or to cover your face when you're on a plane. But when that was the case, a lot of people didn't like it. And a lot of people, uh, you know, excuse me, but you acted like real jerks about it. And some of these people even got violent fighting with other passengers, fighting with flight attendants and and so on. It became a real problem. Violence on airplanes, misconduct on airplanes became a serious problem in the United States. And that's why Congress, who have a lot on their plate, it's fair to say, they are looking at this. And I mean, what would happen if you turned up at the airport and you found that your name was on a no-fly list? Now, we know there are no-fly lists and some people who might have the same name as someone on a no-fly list perhaps has found that they've you know, been unable to get on a plane. But it's quite possible that people that cause this kind of disruption on board an airliner, they're going to not be able to fly. Yeah, so Congress is looking again at creating a new no-fly list. Obviously, we have a no-fly list that is specific to people who are uh, have been involved in or suspected of terrorism, but this would be sort of uh, a different, an entirely different list. And this is for people who have been uh, unruly or violent on airplanes and basically you would say, you know, if you have a history of doing this, you're not getting on a plane. Find some other way to get there or stay home. Mm. Now, the thing about this is, unlike other no-fly lists, people will probably be notified that they are on a no-fly list. So does that mean that they're going to have the chance to appeal that decision, or is this forever? Like, What's going to happen, do you think? Yeah, I think that there is supposed to be some sort of 
appeals process and also the uh, TSA, the Transportation Security Administration that handles all of our uh, security and screenings at the airports, they would get to decide how long somebody remains on that list. So it's not sort of a one strike you're out. And from now on, if you want to go from New York to California, you're going to have to take your bike or walk or something. But um, you know, just I, sort of a yeah, sort of a deterrent, I think, maybe, but also just to make the already often difficult experience of flying somewhere on an airplane a little easier for the people around you, the other passengers. So there are two and a half thousand reports of unruly passengers on flights last year. Two and a half thousand, considering the number of flights. I mean, there's a lot more than two and a half thousand flights. But of course, if you're next to that person, your flight's been ruined. Um, And this is all part of the, the mask mandate as well. Um... What is it now? Um, cases requiring investigation 470% higher than before the pandemic. So that's quite something as well. That's a, that, that is a significant figure, isn't it? Yeah, I think when they first started instituting the mask mandate, people were getting super difficult. The numbers went up super, super high, spiked. And of course, we had other things going on in this country in 2021 in terms of of social or or civil unrest, as you will recall. But the numbers came down in 2022, but they're still much, much higher than they were before COVID. People just people just started acting up on these planes. And I look, I understand some people don't want to wear a mask or they find it intrusive on their personal freedom and so on. But I mean, we generally, for lots of uh, sort of communal things and public places, we do have rules. And if you don't want to be involved in following those rules, you can make other choices. It's not like everybody else has to accommodate your refusal Hmm. to accept that choice. How much of this, though, do you think is partly the fault the fault of the airline that the way that airlines have changed their charging or their behavior over the last 10 years maybe maybe 15 years charging for carry-on luggage charging for booking your seats where in the old days it was free they just assigned you a seat and you sat there you know charging you for all sorts of things excess luggage Uh, making the seats smaller, perhaps, not giving you anything to eat on the plane. I mean, I'll say I've flown enough internally in the United States to know that it is not a very pleasant experience at all. And flying domestically in Australia is a much nicer experience than in the US. Now, maybe it's because, you know, we tend to fly shorter distances in Australia. In America, maybe people are flying across country, so you're on board for four or five hours. But I would say that flying domestically in the US is not a pleasant experience. And also getting on the plane as well, all the, I understand, all the security you've got to go through. People are angry by the time they get to the plane. Yeah, people are tired and frustrated, but unfortunately, and, you know, look, I'm not defending the airlines in the sense of, do I really feel like paying $50 to carry a small suitcase on a plane when I'm already paying uh, what I consider plenty enough to be on that plane at all? Do I want a smaller seat? Do I want to have delays? I'm, I'm also concerned, and there's been an issue recently in the United States about close calls, about air traffic, about, yeah. uh, you know, near misses and things like that. Like, we have serious issues. But I mean, in terms of masking and in terms of precautions, I mean, we were in the middle of a, a global pandemic of, you know, 
hundreds of thousands, millions of people getting sick and people dying, spreading this disease. And look, people did have to take some precautions, even if they didn't like it for themselves, to at least be uh, sort of a responsible citizen and try to look out for other people who might have immunodeficiency or might be vulnerable in some other way, like, yeah, you know what, kind of tough. I don't have that much tolerance for people who think it's their God-given right to get violent. Well, I agree with you there. But at the same time, again, as someone who's lined up to get on a plane, in America, in Australia, okay, well, you know, these people can board first and then, you know, the other people board, that's fine. I mean, the boarding of planes, they have about six different categories and the first people on board are people in the military so there's very rarely i mean there are some there and then okay you know if you're a special flyer you you get on first and then it should be people on the back row they board first and then it's all the way up to the front row they just don't do it properly that's all i'll say yeah look i mean there are um, there are certain groups of people that get preferential treatment, maybe people who need more assistance or time to get on the plane, people with little kids. Mm. And as you say, people in the um, active duty or uh, veterans of the military. But I think they're just trying to create it's like they're almost creating a, a social system, That's like right. a, a stratified system where you feel like you're more special if you pay more money or if you're a member of their rewards program. I mean, look, I remember when you didn't have to go through a magnetometer and they yeah. gave you actual food with actual silverware and it, flying used to be a very luxurious experience as it's become more common, um, you know, and more people are doing it then yeah, the standard of, of quality changes. But as far as people getting violent on airplanes, yeah, I, I don't think most people have much time for that at all. No. All righty. Now, this is an interesting story as well. We've talked about it. They've talked about it on the nightlife program recently as well. And that is, Artificial intelligence, a lot of people talking about chat GPT. Um, Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and other people who have led the tech revolution, they're warning about out-of-control artificial intelligence. Now, they're saying, yes, profound risks. I wonder if it's because they're not at the forefront. If they were leading the way, they'd say how wonderful it was. I don't know. What, what What's your view on this, by the way, and what are they saying about it? Yeah, basically what they're saying is that uh, they're not they're not advising that we stop experimenting or using AI. AI certainly has its uses. I think they're trying to sort of pump the brakes a little bit on it. And it may well be too late for that. Uh, you know, Elon Musk and all these people initially, you know, the idea was that this should be something that's very open source and everybody should have a chance to participate in it. And then maybe some of them, uh, Musk or whoever have pulled back and said, well, you know, actually uh, it should be up to this certain group of, of exceptionally involved and exceptionally knowledgeable people, or, you know, then you start getting into the argument about who should determine what the limits are. Should it be the government? Should it be private industry? Should it be experts? Should it be people with money? Should it be technologists? But uh, I think what people are at least talking about in this letter that was signed by Musk and Steve Wozniak and, and all these people that you may have heard of is that, you know, there are dangers associated with AI, with especially with AI that learns faster 
as fast or faster than human beings and where you can't really predict the results like the AI chat GPT and some of these um, applications and search engines can give out bad information and can give out very convincing bad information. Well, hang on. This or, is coming from Elon Musk. I mean, talking about bad information, does he ever look at the, the company? He didn't start it, but he owns it, and the bad information that people get on Twitter, on Facebook, and things like that? I mean, this is just one more thing. No one expects that social media or modern life is going to give you the truth all the time. You are getting lies, whether it be from people on these social media platforms or from their now saying artificial intelligence how different can it be right and you know i'm not i'm certainly not here to to trumpet my position as president of the elon musk fan club i mean you I know, know you're he, vice he does president. what he does I understand <laughs> he does what he does and look yeah there's certainly been issues with uh tesla there's certainly a lot going on with twitter and his management of twitter having uh gotten involved in that um you know it's definitely realistic to try to advise some caution and also to educate people about what ai is aside from the actual science and development of ai but understanding um, of how to use it and how much to trust in it and where where it's um, reasonable to be involved in it and to believe in it and where not. I, I mean, you know, where it's creating a whole bunch of issues with, um, you know, plagiarism, with uh, sort of questions about awareness of, of whether the machines actually have some sort of awareness or not. Whether, you know, what purpose do they serve? Do they only parrot stuff that human beings feed into the system? Or are they synthesizing all this information in a new way? Like, what if an and, you know, an AI chat application spits out, has a very convincing conversation with you or writes a whole research paper with citations about why you should do something incredibly dumb, like, you know, drink bleach to, you know, cure an illness or something like that. I think sometimes the dangerous people tend to believe that the machine can't be wrong. The machines are smarter than we are and they wouldn't steer us wrong. They know everything so they can present that information to us accurately and usefully. And it's not true. It's, I mean, the yeah. machines give out a lot of bad information and people need to be able to discern just like with human generated information, what's reasonable and what's dangerous. That's a really good point because yes, if you put in to one of these things, give me a, you know, a page on uh, how to, cure COVID or cure cancer or whatever it is and it comes up with something which is you know that it draws on you know stuff on the the internet which is totally wrong then mm -hmm. you know is it able to look at that and think well that's not right at all I'm only going to give you stuff that's been scientifically verified well, that's been a big, that's a big issue. And that's an issue in news consumership uh, generally in the United States and elsewhere. And there are some um, groups that do fact checking and uh, anti-fake and debunking. Um, there are even uh, companies that spend all their time or consortiums that spend all their time trying to explain, okay, not only is this story or that story true, but is this news source reliable or uh unreliable and can a machine especially a machine that's synthesizing huge amounts of material all at the same time like uh if the machine is taught to rely on photographic evidence we now have deep fakes 
Is it relying on what appears to be uh, a legitimate photograph or a legitimate scientific paper that's actually bunk? And then using that to formulate its response to you to say, yeah, you should do, you know, X, Y, Z dumb thing to protect yourself from COVID. See, what we've seen just in the last week or so is, you know, when former President Donald Trump said he was going to be arrested. Well, all those deep fake photos, or fake photos, not even deep fake, that is fake photos of him being arrested were kind of flooding the net, and people may have thought that they were real and decided to take action. And, I mean, who knows where that's going to end up. Right. So, I mean, human beings, machines learn in ways that are somewhat akin to how people learn, which is that they take in vast amounts of information and then they learn to synthesize it and organize it and sort of rank it in terms of importance or reliability and so on. But it doesn't have human comprehension yet. So, you know, people learn, oh, well, maybe I should or shouldn't trust what this person says or this website appears to be a legitimate news outlet, but I can look up and find out that it's funded by, you know, X political group or Y political group. And that should color my perception of whether it's useful information or should be treated skeptically. And so a lot of the things that people can do, machines are either are still learning to do or cannot do because they don't have, you know, human discernment and maybe never can, but they can learn how to, you know, digest and regurgitate huge amounts of information very quickly and in a format that is sort of like human grade convincing okay now this though and celeste katzmarsen is our guest in boston this is even scarier than ai are these swatting calls now we saw yet again another school shooting and a really disturbing one i know they all are but this one looked terrible uh during the week And there were a whole lot of other schools that people thought there were also shootings going on. What happened? Yeah, so there was this horrible, yet another, I know, um, horrible incident in Nashville where um, a person went in and shot up, I believe, a school that they had attended in the past, a, um, a parochial school. And so after something like that happens, it's become very common here in Massachusetts, but also all over the country, for there to be a wave of what are called swatting incidents, where somebody calls in a report, a false report of um, an active shooter at a school or at multiple schools or some other public place. And so that uh, obviously scares the hell out of uh, the kids and teachers and staff at the schools. It diverts public resources, uh, gets the police mobilized, terrifies their parents, um, gets the media spun up and so on, and all for nothing. But in the one case where they might say, ah, this doesn't sound like a real report to me, what if it was? What if there was something going on? So it's an unfortunate uh paradox a catch-22 where you can't ignore it but you spend a ton of time and anxiety anguish terror um on on something that is a prank essentially why people do this is beyond my comprehension or understanding and finally though it's 10 years since the boston marathon bombing I mean, the Boston Marathon, I know there are marathons in various cities around Australia, around the world, but the Boston, it is so much an important part of the city that bombing the marathon was like bombing the heart of Boston. I can't believe it's 10 years. Like everything these days, it seems either much 
closer than that or much further away, I don't know. But um, how's it going to be remembered and memorialized? Well, I think there are going to be some formal ceremonies and so on, but they also really try to make this into a, a day of community service, you know, community um, being the focus, helping other people. They'll have, um, you know, neighborhood cleanups and clothing drives and, um, you know, stuff related to books and so on, so that it's not just a somber thing with you know, ringing of bells or reading of names as we have become accustomed to having, um, you know, certainly as a New Yorker, the commemoration of 9-11 and the reading of the names, the tolling of the bell, that's that's a big thing. But this is also supposed to be something positive to show that Boston has remained a strong community filled with people that still care about each other 10 years after this very, very tragic incident. Are you going to be running the marathon? You know, only, only in my mind and in oh, my heart this year. <laughs> Maybe next year. If you come, if you come over and do it with me, uh, the chances of me running a marathon are even less, perhaps, than you running the marathon. But <laughs> uh, I will recommend the movie Patriots Day. It's a really, it's a fantastically good movie about what happened. It's a very, very methodical procedural drama in a way, but about what happened and how they caught the people that did it. It was a very, very interesting film and very well made. Uh, Celeste, thank you very much for that. We will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Celeste Katzmarston in Boston in the United States.